Okay, I'll get you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our look at this particular chapter. Can I get you to get me the, the hymn book ready at the page? Colossians chapter 3, we'll read from verses 5 to 11 this morning. Special welcome to our visitors. If you're here for the first time, we pray that you have been blessed so far and that you will be blessed with the message today. Colossians 3, 5. That's fine, you can just leave it there, thanks. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry for which things sake the wrath of god cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them but now ye also put off all these anger wrath malice blasphemy filthy communication out of your mouth lie not one to another seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Let's uh, go to him in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your precious word that you have delivered to us and preserved for us. We just ask that our hearts would be open to the leading and the teaching of your spirit this morning and that you would use me simply as an instrument in your hand that our hearts may be directed purely to Christ our Saviour and that we might see more of him both in heaven and within our own lives. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Okay. Ever thought about what the meaning of success is? Who wants to be successful here? Put up your hand. We have about two people that want to be successful. We have a church that wants to be completely unsuccessful. Okay. They're afraid to answer the question, I think, because they think it's a trick question, but it's not. Okay. So success, I mean, I've read a lot of different business books and self-help books over the years and there's plenty of them on the market if you want to learn how to be successful in life but most of them actually are talking about a particular angle okay so whether it's success in business success in in work success in careers and success in relationships and all that sort of stuff and I suppose that's true it depends on whatever angle you're coming whatever your circumstances are and what perspective you're looking at it from Every person really in the world wants to be successful. I don't think, if I were to ask that question, who wants to be unsuccessful? See, no one puts up their hand. So we have a church here that's completely confused. They don't know whether to be successful or unsuccessful. So success really depends on what perspective you're asking that question from. You see, if you were to ask that question as a father, let's say, who has children. What does it mean to be successful as a father? Well, then all of a sudden, you're more focused, aren't you? And you actually know what it, you, you've probably got in your mind what, what it, success as a father would look like. 
and it may mean providing for your family, protecting your family, being there as a support for the family, guiding your children, and all those types of things, and maybe having a happy household, and all those types of things that people see as ideal in their life. So that might be true as a father, maybe as a student. So if you're a student who's studying at the moment, success might mean that you actually get to hand in all your you know, assignments on time and get a decent mark for that and you pass all your, you know, all your tests or exams and things of that nature. So depending on what angle you're looking at it from, and there are a range of different angles, and most of us, our lives aren't just one-dimensional, they're multi-dimensional. So you are a father, possibly a student, a worker, and all different types of things. So success really depends on what perspective you're asking that question from. But out of all these things, there is one perspective that is meant to supersede all of the rest, all of them, all of them put together. Okay, so whether I'm a father or worker, a person who's looking at it as a career or a student or whatever else it may be, the highest order, the greatest perspective, the most important perspective is how do I achieve success as a child of God? as a citizen of heaven that is the most important perspective because you know what the whole world is going to pass away one day the whole world is going to finish up so it doesn't matter how successful i am at business or everything else it really pales into insignificance when it, when i think about the eternal life i have been given through christ and that now my identity and my eternal future okay not just 50 60 70 80 years for those of you who are 80, 90 and 100, okay, um, on this earth, but eternity. So in terms of importance, the most important perspective is simply by numbers is what comes after and what I'm doing now to prepare myself for that. And because we have been given eternal life as a gift, well, what we are doing now to invest in that eternal life is going to determine what the rest of our eternity is going to be like. You see... He who is given much is required much. Okay, The Bible also says he who is uh, faithful in the least or in the small things is given more. He's faithful in the large things. So there is a responsibility that we will take on us in the coming kingdom. Okay, And it depends on how we live our lives here. You thought... You might have thought, oh, you know, the way I live my life here will not make any difference to me being in heaven. It will. It will 100% make a difference. Because what we do here is going to be judged. Okay, Whether you're a believer or not, we, our works are still going to be judged. Did you know that? The difference is the believer's sins are not going to be judged because they've already been judged. But what we do with our lives, how we invest our lives, will be judged. The most important thing we can ask this morning as, as we look forward to a brand new year and we want to make a good start, right? How you start the race makes a difference to how you finish it. Is how can I be successful as a child of God, as a citizen of heaven? So last week we started looking at these first four verses, verses one to four, and it started with a command to seek those things which are above, to put our affections, set our affections on things which are above. And we looked at all those things that are above. And we looked at all the, this passage in Revelation that 
described for us, you know, the, the throne of God. It described the angels and described the 24 elders that, that are worshipping God. It described the seraphim above the throne of God. It described the beauty of heaven. And so when the Bible tells us to set our affection on things above, we ask ourselves, well, which things? Because there are plenty of things in heaven. But then we ask, we, I, I got you to understand that all of heaven, their perspective, whether they're angels or elders or saints or whatever else it is, all have their affections all focused on one place. And that's the throne of God. That is him. So he is to be our affection. He is to be the one who we seek. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It is God. Who sits on the throne, the Lamb of God, who is at the center of all of heaven's affections. So if I'm a citizen of heaven now, then I should have the same affections as all of them. I should be in line with them. All of their attention, their love, their praise, their worship, their adoration, their glorification are all on the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord of hosts. And the seraphim cry out continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so we as a citizen of heaven have been called to focus our lives, our very lives, everything that we have, everything that we are on him. Start that from now. And so Colossians 3, 1 says, if you then be risen with Christ. Now that describes a born again believer. That's in Colossians 3, 1. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. This is the foundation of a successful Christian life. The foundation. See, before you can build the house, you have to have a strong foundation. And so the Apostle Paul sets the foundation for us here. And it is setting your affection and seeking the things which are important first. It's pointless putting the cart before the horse. The horse won't go. Okay, You need to put the horse first so he can take the cart with him. And the foundation of a successful life is seeking those things which are above. Understanding that we are in Christ. And from that foundation... We can then build with success. Everything we do, the Bible says, whether we eat or drink or whether we, whether we do this or that, we are to do with Christ at this, as a center of our motive and desire. It is for his glory. It is for his pleasure that we have been created. And it's for him that we move and live and have our being. The scripture declares that we who have believed in Jesus Christ are dead dead and are hidden with Christ in God. And I want you to just think on that phrase for a moment. It says in verse 3 that your life is hid with Christ. Where? In God. Think about that just for a moment. You're, you are hidden with Christ. You're with him and you are in God. So we're, we're actually hidden within God's heart. He has hidden us within himself. The one who is being worshipped, he holds us close within him. That is a hiding which is difficult to understand and comprehend. Because Christ, who is both God and man, is sitting on a throne in heaven. 
and we are now in him and in God. It, and what that means is that we are safe beyond all understanding. If you're saved, then you are safe. Okay? There is no one who can take you out of God's hand and out of his heart. There is no one who can attack the throne of God and steal you away from him. You're safe. There is nothing to worry about. There is no fear that we should have concerning tomorrow because we are safe within him. It reminds me of that when Moses asked God to show himself. Moses wanted to see the face of God. And God said, listen, if you see, my, if you see me, you're going to be burnt to a crisp. You're not going to last because you can't handle who I am. And so he said to Moses, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to, I'm going to hide you in, a, in a, what he called a cliff or a cleft of the rock. Okay, so there's this, you can imagine a, a massive stone wall and there's a crack in that wall. And he says, I'm going to hide you in there. Okay, in the middle of all that. So you're completely surrounded by rock. And then I'm going to cover, I'm going to put my hand over the front and then... As I pass by, I'm going to let you just see my back. And when he came up off that mountain, he was glowing. And the people were so scared of him, okay? He was glowing so much, he had hair whiter than my beard, okay? And my hair. He was gl literally glowing. His face was shining, and the people were actually scared of him. And they said, well, we, we don't want to hang around you. You look like an alien or something, huh? And they made him wear a veil over his face because he was so scary to people. That's what it means just to see a glimpse of God as he's leaving from his back. But I want, to I want you to understand something. He was hidden in the cleft of a rock. And that's who God is for us. Okay? He was kept safe even from the, the all-consuming power of God within that rock. And so this morning, the Bible says that that is true of all of us. We've been hidden within a rock, the rock, okay? And there is no one who can steal us out of there. We are safe from all our predators. We are safe from the devil. We are safe even from our own selves because we are hidden within God himself. Jesus says, actually turn to John chapter 10 with me. Because this is the same. The Bible says here, and this is what Jesus told us in John 10, 28. You see, you'll notice in that verse it says we are hidden with Christ in God. And listen to what Jesus tells his disciples. John 10, verse 28. Okay, so the only person in all of history who ever spoke words like this he says in John 10, 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So if you've been granted eternal life this morning, if you've been given eternal life, which means you are saved for all of eternity, then you are in not just in Christ's hand, you are in God the Father's hand. There's no one who can take you out of there. 
So even though we are living on this earth and things might look chaotic sometimes around us and the world might look as if it's going crazy, and even though our own mortal lives may be in danger, we are safe with Jesus, safe until that glorious day when he shall appear. And the Bible says that we shall appear in glory too, because at the moment we are hidden, the Bible says. But there will come a day when we are not hidden anymore, when, when who we really are is going to be revealed to the entire world and to all the angelic hosts. And because of this wonderful hope that no one can steal from us and there's no chance of losing, you, as we approach 2024, sorry, as we've started 2024, can have every confidence that any challenge that comes your way, any tribulation or trial or persecution or problem really is nothing compared to what you already have in Jesus Christ. And that you should simply set your affection on him and seek to please him in all things. And let's see how we now seek to please him, how we build on that foundation. And look at Colossians, go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. So Colossians 3, 5 then tells us to 7, it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which thing's sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. Okay, so let's look at the word mortify. If I declared you mortified, I'm declaring you dead. Okay. So when the Bible says to mortify these particular things, it is telling us to kill them, put them to death, eradicate them, wipe them out, show no mercy, destroy them utterly from your life. Just like David did with Goliath, just as the Israelites were commanded to do with the Amorites, we are called to do with fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry which should not be even named among us which form no part which have no place in our lives we are called to have no mercy on these things none whatsoever we are to kill them with absolute zealousness okay these do not belong in the life of a child of god they do not characterize who we are anymore. They are not part of our new life in Christ. Nor, the Bible says, do they have dominion over us anymore as they do the children of the world. And you'll notice that there are two types of children in the world. The first are the children of disobedience. And it's not talking about children as in little, little children. This is talking about you are either a child of God or a child of the devil. Okay, so the, And the child of the devil are also described as the children of disobedience. They disobey by nature God, but they obey their flesh. They obey the devil and the world. And these are epitomized by these things. Their lives are characterized by these types of things. And they're typical for them. They do them like drinking a glass of water. 
Okay, not a problem at all. They take every uh, joy out of it and they have no concern about the consequences nor of the moral problem with these things. And so what I want you to, I want to get you to do, I want you to think about, it says here, for these things sake, the wrath of God, which means his fury, his judgment is coming upon these people. And in, in times and in places, Dashi does, okay, has already come upon these, these people who are lost in this direction, okay? Now, I want you to turn back to Romans with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And we're going to look at a more defined or a more detailed description of these particular things and how the wrath of God comes upon the ungodly or these children of disobedience. Now, I want you to take note of the things that are written in Colossians, that list that, that I've read for you a couple of times now. And I want you to take note of the list that Romans gives us. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So just for, for the first to start us off here, the state of every person in the world Okay, one time or another is this ungodly and unrighteous. And the Bible says that deep down, and if you've been if you've been saved at a later sort of stage, you probably realize this more, okay, and this is probably more clear to you, that deep down when you were unsaved, you were holding what you knew to be truth down. You might have heard the gospel. You knew it to be true, but you keep on holding it down. You don't want to reveal it too much because it condemns you as a person. And so the Bible says that deep down they know that God exists. And they know good and evil because they possess a conscience. But they remain ungodly because they deny God and they cannot be righteous because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. And even knowing the truth, they suppress it. They deny it. They pretend it doesn't exist. Or as Paul puts it, they hold the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they try to cover it up or manipulate it in a way that suits them. Paul goes on to explain in verse 19 now of Romans. He says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, all of mankind is without excuse. Okay, According to the Bible, there is none that has an excuse. Because that, when they knew God, this is holding the truth down, okay? This is hiding and suppressing the truth. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So even God, even, the, even though the existence of an almighty God and this creator is built within every person, and is manifest, the Bible says, in them. Their own lives actually point to a creator. Why? Because they know good and evil. They know it. From an early age, they know what is right. There's something that's right and something that's wrong. 
They, they understand that there's this thing called love. They understand that and they see the world through a brain that can reason. They have life. They're able to love. They are not robots. We are not robots. And as you, as you look at the universe around you, God expects you to use your ability to reason and say, hang on a sec. Look at all these wonders that I see around me. It had to come from somewhere. And the more you know in knowledge, the more it should point you to God. This is why scientists have no excuse, really. Scientists, the more they study nature, the more they study the universe, the more they see the intricate laws and the way it works, really have less and less excuse. But because they cannot open their minds to the option of God, they refuse to acknowledge him and become, the Bible says, vain in their imagination. And their imagination, well, it means to have an, a vain imagination, is it means that your mind starts going to places that are pointless and useless. And Paul's going to explain that for us now. People who refuse to believe in God, I'll tell you what they believe in. Crystals. Ever been to those shops? One of the things we love doing is going to small country towns. And inevitably, you're going to find one of those new age shops that has dragons in the window, that has crystals hanging at the front door, that has all these different things going on. So when someone refuses to believe in God, they turn to worship and trust in things that are inanimate. Okay, They trust in foolishness. They trust in astrology, as if a planet is going to affect you personally, okay? As if the stars, the way they move, are going to be the ones that determine what my day is going to be like. Let's open up the newspaper today and work out whether I'm going to have a nice day or not. Oh, look at that. Sagittarius is in, uh, is in Jupiter or something like that. That's a bad thing for me. The Bible calls that vain imagination. Some fool came up with an idea that those things are meant to be followed and believed in. And ever since then, people have followed that particular path. And it's not just that. Think of every superstition. I mean, Italians, coming from an Italian background, there are plenty of superstitions that we believe. All of them stupid. One more stupid than the other one. Okay? But every culture has superstitions. Where do they come from? People's vain imaginations. Because they don't believe in God. They are forced to believe in unseen forces or they watch. <laughs> Ever done this? I mean, when I was younger, I used to, used to play a game with myself. You know, I'd be hitting a ball against the wall. And I'd say to myself in my mind, if I hit this five times in a row, something good's going to happen to me. <laughs> and I never got five in a row. Ever done that? Where you actually set yourself a limit and if this happens, this is going to occur. And if that happens, something else is going to occur. You see, that's vain imagination. And that's part of, that's where superstitions start. Yeah? Some guy walked under a ladder once. Okay? And the guy who was painting on top of a ladder, it wasn't Francis, fell on top of him. Okay? And so, from then, he came up to himself and says, it's bad luck to walk under a ladder. And ever since then, people have passed that same thing on. So whether you consider astrology, superstitions, 
witchcraft, paganism, animism, worshipping the world, worshipping the sun, the moon, the stars, animals and all the unseen forces that go on. Whether you're a Star Wars fan and you believe in the force, you know what I mean? It's all vain imagination. It's all nonsense. But that's what the Bible says people's minds go to. Where you remove the most important foundational truth of a person's life, which is the existence of God. A personal God who is, the, who is the definition of what is right and wrong and holy and good. Once you take him out of the picture, your brain goes in all different types of directions because it has to fill in what's not there. And so people, by their vain imaginations, invent systems of religion. You see, religion is simply taking a superstition that started and then building a whole system around it, okay? So the ladder people, okay, have a special way maybe of going around ladders from now on, okay? And making sure that if you, you take two steps to the side and one step forward and don't step on the cracks in the concrete, because that's bad luck too, and make sure then you avoid the cat, the black cat that's going to cross your road. They develop a whole religious system and that's, look at all the religions in the world. That's how they start. They start with a premise and they just keep building and building on that. And they build, they build wonderfully complex religions, wonderfully complex six systems of worship and meaning and everything else. And what's interesting is that they become even proud about it. They become arrogant that their system is better than someone else's system. And my system is superior than yours. Look, we've got more people than you that follow my system. You know, the, the black cat people have got less than the ladder people. The Bible says that those things are vain imaginations. And unfortunately, the same people that derive and create all those foolish religions are then followed by other people who also are empty in their brains and in their, in their hearts. They don't have God in there, so they, they are desperate to find something to give them meaning and so if someone dangles some sort of a dead carrot in front of them a withered up carrot they take it straight away it reminds me of second timothy three thirteen that says but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse deceiving others and being deceived at the same time it's a vicious circle that just keeps on going around and around. And so Romans one twenty two, as we continue, it says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image make like, made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. You know, think of who this letter was written to. It's written to the Romans. What type of society the Romans have Paul knew very well who the Romans were what the Roman society was like Paul was a Roman citizen and Rome had a plethora of gods you see over the time all those vain imaginations the Romans collected up all of them they loved them the whole lot of them they collected all of the, all the Greek gods they took all the Greek gods that existed and they gave them Italian names that's what you do okay they took all the other gods, whether they were Egyptian or whatever. So wherever the Romans conquered, they adopted their gods too. 
The Romans were, were happy if they, once they conquered you, they let you have your religion. Okay? As long as you accept everyone else's religion as well. So the, Ro the Romans' uh, um, uh, culture was filled with God. They had gods like Zeus and Athena, Apollo, Mercury, all those different plethora of gods, and they looked like men and women. A whole lot of them. They made statues of them. And then also they worshipped birds. Okay, so they, they had the phoenix, which rose again from the ashes. Acanthus. And plenty of Greek deities were associated with specific types of birds. Romans adopted, you know, the Egyptian gods like Horus as well, who looked like a falcon, and Thoth, uh, who was like an ibis. Romans also worshipped a three-headed wolf. You wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley. But all the animals, birds, men, and every type of imagination were worshipped in Rome. And the picture is here that once you dismiss the one true God, your imagination will cause you to worship everything under the sun, including the sun. No matter how far-fetched or stupid or crazy it actually is, because you are desperate to fill in that void. This is true of every culture in history, every culture, bar none. And it was so obvious in Rome, in Paul's day, that he was simply telling them what they already knew too well. They were surrounded by a pagan culture and they'd been part of it before. I wonder as we look around our culture today, think about Australia, think about Melbourne. What has our enlightened culture here in Melbourne replaced God with? Oh, yeah, we have, a, we have an answer, yes. Sporting hero. Sporting hero, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, sporting hero. So sport's huge in Melbourne, isn't it? Okay, so they worship at the altar of the sport gods. Okay. Sorry? Gambling. Yeah, gambling's another good one as well. Lattes are a good one. Entertainment, another good, great one over here in Melbourne. We love our entertainment. Okay, we can't live without it. If you take away my latte, I cannot function. Um, but they've replaced, not only, uh, if we look at that as, as a more of a superficial thing, but I want you to think about the actual, the, the, the foundations of what a lot of people in Melbourne believe, because there are probably a significant portion of people in Melbourne who are fairly new age, and now have come to the conclusion that animal life is more precious than human life because humans are the scourge of the world and like a disease that needs to be eradicated. And so they see animals as more important than human life. They worship the earth. They give it a name. It's called Gaia or Gaia. Okay. And they worship the earth more than everything else. And that they need to sac we need to sacrifice ourselves to protect the planet Earth. Okay. Um, then there are those who worship money and power and greed. Um, there are those who worship man and put man at the centre of everything. There are those who worship governments. There are those who worship the rulers that are that are above them. Um, there are those who worship movie stars, 
and idolise celebrities and influencers and singers. There are a multitude of things that people worship without realising they worship them, but they devote themselves to them. You see, you can tell someone who's worshipping something when they can't live without them, when they form the major part of their life, when they seek, and this is interesting about movie stars and singers and celebrities, they say that imitation is the highest form of flattery. Okay? The highest form of flattery is to imitate someone else. Okay? And so there are people in our world who track very carefully the latest fashions and crazes and, and things that celebrities do and they seek to imitate them as best as they possibly can because that gives them meaning in life. Last time I checked, the Bible says we had to imitate Christ, but they've replaced that with celebrities. In Roman days, you were supposed to worship Caesar as a god. In fact, one of the things they used to do with early Christians to make sure that they removed this fanciful notion that there was only one god to worship is they would often uh, force them to offer incense to a statue of Caesar. And if they offered the, 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 statue, the, uh, the incense to Caesar, they were released. If they refused to offer the incense to Caesar, they were either tortured or they took their family and tortured them in front of them until they offered the sacrifice to Caesar. Now, I wonder what would happen to us if we ever were in that situation. But men still worship men. People worship people. People worship themselves. People worship governments like communist governments and people like uh, Kim Jong-un. Probably a typical example of like a Caesar-like figure where his people adore him and can't live without him. The Bible says in Romans 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. But when a man reaches a stage where he's refused to believe in God and has replaced God with everything else, and he willingly chooses to worship the creation rather than the creator, God can hand him over to his own imagination. God can release his hand of grace. And yes, God does give grace to the unsaved as well. You see, he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. God still blesses those people who hate him. There comes a time, though, when people hate him enough and refuse to have anything to do with him, that he might let go a bit. And when God lets go of a person, it's a very, very bad downward spiral. And degradation takes place. Their identity is, is tarnished as included their sexuality as well. And the culmination of this occurs, if you look at verse 24 to 27, you'll notice it says there, wherefore God also gave them up. Notice God gives them up. He gives up on them. Okay, He gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, 
who was blessed forevermore, ever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was me. Now, I don't need to explain to you, this has to do with homosexuality and with debauchery. And we live in a time when this type of sin is paraded with pride. Okay? Okay, so our society is changing quite rapidly. But we need to be aware of what's going on because as their imagination gets worse and worse and God hands them over to their imagination, it doesn't get better. Okay? And so Paul is once again expressing what the Romans, what the believers in Rome already knew. They were surrounded by this every day of their lives. They knew exactly what was going on around them. In fact, some of them came out of that type of life. They knew what was going on in Roman baths. They knew what was going on in idols' temples and the general unrestrained sexual boundaries of the Roman culture. Without God, the boundaries are broken down and man goes deeper and deeper into those things which the scriptures teach are vile affections. Do you remember where the Colossians tells us in verse 1 to 4 where to set your affections? Okay. So where you replace the affection of God, you will find another affection. Okay? And where you choose to bestow your love and your lusts upon things on the earth, the result is always destructive and evil. Paul describes these things as dishonorable, unnatural, vile and unseemly. But it doesn't stop here. For degraded sexuality is one sign that a person has rejected God and has moved into lusts of the world. God, the Bible says, also gives people over to a reprobate mind. Now, reprobate simply means it doesn't work anymore. Okay, It stops functioning like it's supposed to. They've seared their conscience so hard, so much, it doesn't work. What they should have realized was bad, now they now call good. They flip the whole thing upside down and God says he hands them over to a reprobate mind. The brain just does not function. I remember there was a, a brother here whose, whose uh, children were involved in drugs. Okay, And serious, the serious kind of drugs. And the fear was that while they're on these drugs, that it would permanently damage their brain. You see, if you start taking hard stuff like crack and cocaine and those types of things, you can take it to a point, but once it hits a certain point, your brain is rewired. And once you've hit that point, there's no turning back because your brain is being chemically changed and it doesn't go back anymore. And the fear was the longer they're on the drugs the less chance there was of them actually returning to normality. But praise God, through prayer and through God's grace, they were saved from that. 
But there are plenty of people in this world who can't think anymore. Have you ever seen those people walking in the streets, especially in the US? They just don't know where they are. This is what the Bible says about people who go deep into that degraded type of life, who refuse to acknowledge God and replace him with every, the love of everything else in the world. So verse 28 in Romans 1 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, I want you to notice there's a semicolon at the end of this particular thing, which is telling us these are the things which are not convenient, which, got, which are the result of a reprobate mind. Now, have a look what a reprobate mind looks like. It says in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers, means that people can just easily break their promises, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Did you see this list? That's the typical fruit of a reprobate mind, a mind that is lost, okay, that God has given up. But I want you to also notice that part of this list is given to us in Colossians. Colossians gives us the same things which are the reason God's wrath comes upon people, upon the children of disobedience. So when it comes to the believer who is in Christ, Listen to what the first, go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. The first cab off the rank needs to be these things that need to be dead, that need to be killed, that we are to avoid at all cost. Because these are the reasons that God's wrath is going to pour down in this world. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify, kill therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, when I, now mortify, as I said to you, it means put to death. These are the attachments that hold people to the world, that keep them chained to the world. Now, I want, I'm going to explain each of them for you. Fornication is any sexual activity outside of marriage between man and a woman. Okay, and only that definition of man and a woman. That includes homosexuality as well. And so it encompasses almost everything else that's listed in, in there. It's a general term for any sexual activity outside of marriage. Okay? Then we've got uncleanness. That is moral and physical impurity. It's the result of, of doing these things. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans one twenty four. It says in Romans 1.24, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. The same word. Then we have inordinate affection. And that's a lust. That's a desire that is completely unreasonable or excessive. It's exactly the same word Paul uses in Romans 1.26. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. 
Then we have evil concupiscence. That's a vile lust. And it's exactly the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1.24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts, that's that word, of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves. That's quite a strong list. So the two lists in Romans and Colossians actually go hand in hand and are closely related. Paul uses, same author, uses the same words in both of them and they both result in the wrath of God coming down upon the children of disobedience. So the believers who were in Rome were experiencing the same thing as the believers who were in Colossae, okay, in the Colossians. You'll notice here that Paul doesn't argue, oh, we need to try and tell people not to live this type of lifestyle to improve the culture that we should be going out there and saying, thou shalt not do this or that. Thou shalt live a life that is wholesome and pure. Paul doesn't say that. Even though the Romans and the Colossians were living in abominable cultures, because the life that they were living comes as a result of what they were believing. Okay, It's the result of. So if you try to fix up a person's life, if you go and say, oh, that's no good that you're doing that, and that person doesn't believe in God, you can try and whitewash a wall as much as you can. But if it's a dead tomb, it doesn't make a difference. Okay, You're just, you're just painting something that doesn't actually change the core of what's going on. It's like treating just the symptom but not actually fixing the, the actual disease. A culture cannot be fixed by forcing people to obey the commands of God. A culture like Melbourne cannot be fixed by going out there and saying, you shouldn't be living like this. Pointless going to a gay person and saying, you shouldn't be living like a gay person or committing homosexual acts. Pointless, the Bible says. Why? Because the core problem is that they've rejected God. So they need to turn to God first before all those other things can happen. Salvation does not come by works, but by faith. And a culture is not saved by works, but by faith. And it's exactly the same thing. This is why we preach the gospel, because the gospel goes to the heart of the problem. And the heart is disbelief and repentance that's needed. Good works naturally follow true belief. And Colossians 3 6 then says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. How far I wonder is this world from that level of disobedience? The more we see in the world, the more we see the Western world specifically denying the Bible, running away from the existence of God. And it will keep on moving in a direction that will take it deeper and deeper into a black hole. And it will move more and more into sexual corruption, into pornography, and every other sin that's listed for us in Romans. Things such as envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, despiteful, proud, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affliction, implacable, unmerciful, and even disobedient to parents, which tells us that even children are being affected. 
we live in a culture today where it's actually been outlawed that if a child comes to us or comes to our church or comes to me as a pastor and says, I'm confused about my sexuality, that I'm not allowed to pray for them. Does that make sense to you? This is what our state government has put in place. This is the world we live in now. Okay? We are already well down the track. What's also shocking is that during the tribulation, when God's pouring out his wrath upon the world, in the middle of that pouring out of wrath, by chapter 9 of Revelation, the Bible says that a third of mankind has been killed by the wars okay, that have gone on. A third of mankind. That's 2.5 billion people that are dead. Can you imagine tomorrow there's a war starts and, and a third of all the people on the planet are dead because of wars and, and the plagues that God has poured down upon man. But listen to Revelation 9.20. It says, And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So even with a third of the world dead, man still doesn't get that God's judging the world. And they still find no place for repent repentance because the mind is now reprobate and doesn't work. They can't allow for it. They have been blinded by the God of this world. They cannot see the truth. So despite the judgments of God, they will not give up what they love. But you know what's amazing? The very next verse in Colossians. It says in Colossians 3.7, it says, In the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them. Did you get that? He's talking to the Colossians. He's gone through a whole list of these reasons that God is going to judge the world. And then he says, you used to walk like this at one stage. At one time, do you remember? You were like this when you lived in them. Did you get that? Can you imagine? Some of the people had been involved in such gross immorality that God saved them out of that. And now they were in the church and Paul's reminding them, remember you were like that. Remember where you've come from. Remember what God has given to you as a gift. And it means that God can save the worst of sinners. There is no one beyond the reach of the grace of God. And there is no one beyond the need of the grace of God. And so because of that, we are called in verse 8 and 9 in Colossians 3, but now you also put off all these. Okay, now God is calling us to a higher level, not just to make sure that those things are dead, but now he's saying, now listen, those things should not have any part of your life. Make sure they're completely dead and eradicated from your life. Now I want you to now focus on the next level. Okay, the next level is this. Put off all these. Anger. Wrath. 
which means wanting revenge on someone else. Okay, when you get really angry with someone that you want to hurt them. Malice, which means having bad intents against other people. Blasphemy, which means speaking things that are not right and against God. Filthy communication out of your mouth, which means any type of language that is unbecoming. Any swearing, anything. And then he says, lie not one to another. Don't lie. Speak the truth always to each other. And then he says this, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Can I ask you a question? See these things here? This list I've just given you? Do any of these exist in heaven? Can you imagine any of the angels swearing, blaspheming, lying, or doing any of these things? No. Okay. So Paul says, make sure that these are gone as well. Put these things off. Get rid of them out of your life. They should not be part of our lives as well. And so we are to look to remove these things with concerted and and sustained effort. Be more faithful at removing these things from your life than you would if you saw a pothole while you were driving and you tried to avoid it, right? Who loves to go over big potholes after a train? No one, because no one wants to wreck their car. So everyone tries to swerve around a pothole. But how good are we swerving around these things? How much effort do you put into these things? Avoid these things more than you would avoid falling flat on your face. More than you would avoid eating a rotten piece of fruit. If I gave you a rotten apple and I said, there you go, take it, take it. would you eat it? No. You'll say, I'm not hungry at the moment. <laughs> avoid these things as you would things that are natural, but avoid them more. These do not belong to our, in our lives. And I want you to notice why they don't belong in our lives, because he says, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. We already have. Not something we're still doing. We've already put off the old man. That was done already. Seeing you have put off. And that's what it means when Jesus died on that cross and I died there with him. The old man that I had was taken away from me and he was crucified on that cross with Christ. And look at the next verse then. So we have already taken off the old man. Verse 10 then says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Is that something we're still doing? No. It's been done already. The old man is off. The new man is already on. And because of this, we are called to remove those things from our lives because it's already happened. And we've been created after the image of him who created him. Who created us? God did, right? It's through Christ. Now, I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. We're almost done. Galatians 3.26. Now, what does it mean that we've put on the new man? We've taken off the old man, which is the old us. Now, that's clear enough. But what's the new man that we've put on? Look at the way Paul explains it in Galatians 3.26. It says, For ye, Galatians 3.26, For ye are all the children of God, 
by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on who? Christ. We've put on him. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Did you remember what baptism is a picture of? Baptism picture is you die and you come up a new person, okay, with new life. To be baptised in Christ means that we've been immersed in him. We've been baptised in him. We died with him on the cross and just as he rose again from the grave, we've risen to new life as well. We did not come up the same way we went down. We did not. We've come up a new man. And what's amazing about these verses is that we've now been clothed with him. He clothes us. It's his righteousness that we see. Ever seen a biscuit dipped in chocolate? It doesn't come up the same, does it? It comes up looking a lot more delicious. It's different to what it went down. And that's us. We've been, we went down dead. We came up clothed with Christ. We clothed with him, believe it or not. That is true for every person who has put their faith in Christ. That's a beautiful picture when you think of it. That's how God sees us. You see, we're clothed already. He, when he sees us, he sees us looking just like his son. We're clothed just like him. We look beautiful just like him. Doesn't matter where you've come from. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your background is. Because you'll notice it says, there is neither. if you go to Colossians 3.11, it says the same things as Galatians. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. The Bible says that once you go down and you come up, you come out looking like him. And this is what our motivation should be. Because this has happened to us, the Bible says we are to do these things. So we've laid our foundation. The next stage is take off those things which don't belong in the house anymore. Okay? Because God's building a house. He's building us together. And there are certain things that belong that don't belong in the house. The principle in the Bible that speaks of marriage is, a, is, a, is an interesting one. The Bible says that as long as a person lives, okay, who's married to someone else, they're locked into that marriage. Okay? But if, if one of the partners dies, if the husband dies, then they're released from that marriage that covenant right if one of the partners dies one of the spouse dies they're released from that covenant do you know who we were married to before we were married to the world and because we died we were released from the world but now we are wedded to christ we are in him we are eternally bound to him and he doesn't divorce he never lets us go Do you want to be victorious in your walk with the Lord? Do you want to have victory over the world? Do you want to be successful in your 
Christian life, then lay your foundation. Set your affection on him. Aim your direction in his direction. Follow him. Recognize that you've already won because Christ has won for you. Recognize that your old self is dead and you have now been clothed with Christ. Don't fear what's to come tomorrow because Jesus has already won it for you. Listen to these words and I'm just going to close with these words. John 16.33 says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Praise God for that. Next week we'll look at what to put on. But until then, please lay your foundation. Set your sights this year on Christ. Put him first in everything that you do and choose to remove all those things that are not pleasing to him in your life. And let's look at next week what to put on. Okay?